0: It's true, the Bible has long been wielded in the interests of our enemies. But here at Faith in Capital, we believe the scriptures can serve as a weapon for the people. Hello and welcome. You are listening to another episode of Bible in Red. Okay, we are on for another Bible in Red. Super excited about this conversation today. Chris, I had a crazy day at work. Just checking in real quick. You doing okay?
1: Yeah, I'm doing okay. Holy Week's over. So, I'm doing great.
0: Yeah, and as a pastor, that is... um, You experience... Unfortunately, you experience Holy Week sometimes a little bit differently. Especially as a newbie, right? You're a little newbie. I,
1: I am a newbie. Yeah, there's a lot of work I did not anticipate. (laughs) I'll be ready for next year,
0: though. Yeah, right on. Cool. All right, well, today we are talking about revolutionary optimism and hope. And we're going to be reading the resurrection stories. We're actually going to take a little bit from the Gospel of Luke. And like good evangelicals, we're cherry-picking a little bit of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to mush them together. And I think there's some really interesting stuff. Again, revolutionary optimism. We're going to engage these these sensibilities, these tendencies around nihilism, or or even like an idealist optimism. And I think it'll be fun. So let's go ahead, dive in. Uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 24, 1 through 12. And then we're going to read the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. Chris, let's get rolling. All right, Luke 24. Here we go. But on the first day
1: of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. Here ends the reading.
0: Okay, let's keep it going. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here ends this reading. All right, so let's start with Luke. What do you think, Chris? What sticks out to us in the first part of our story?
1: The first thing we should notice, I think, is that the first preachers of resurrection are the group of women who are not counted among the 12 disciples of Jesus. And um, they're the first also to believe in the good news of resurrection. And whenever they return to Jesus's closest people, his his tightest group of students, those folks cannot hear the news of resurrection through these people. Yeah, there's a lesson for us there. Who bears the truth of resurrection? Who bears the truth of the good news? Um, who can you hear it from? This is like a, a basic liberation theology insight that the, the good news of Jesus often comes from the places where we have been unable or unwilling to look for it. This is no exception to that. What did you see?
0: Well, I think you named something really interesting there, and part of it was you pointing out how the in-group his fo- his group of followers the apostles rejected the truth. And so I think for any of us I mean we all we all consider ourselves to be on the in-group, right? Whatever you know whether we're talking religiously or politically, we think of ourselves as being followers of the correct way, as being you know practitioners of the correct movement or ideology. And I think that is a great example of the necessity of like self-criticism. This openness to being wrong, to always be open to the unexpected truth coming from places that we may have become blind to because of, say, internal prejudices. Obviously, in this example, we see patriarchy really blinding some of the men from hearing what they needed to hear, learning the truth, Uh, but I think we could extend this to other areas as well.
1: And I think there's a lot of other good stuff here we could pull out. I'm struck by this this time reading through that this is is the account of resurrection in Luke but it's actually a really disappointing resurrection there's no there's nothing spectacular about it and this group of women come to believe even though they haven't had like an announcement from the heavens necessarily they haven't seen Jesus and they haven't like Thomas and John been able to put their hands in the wounds right they haven't had any of that They've witnessed him zero times, yet they come to believe just through this stone rolled away from the tomb and through these strangers who tell who tell them he's not here,
0: yeah, but it, but it was their, exp- there. yeah, it was their experience, right? That's how they came to know this truth. It was through their experience. And of course, our experience isn't always as trustworthy as as, you know, it, it's not just because someone says they experienced something doesn't mean they've, like directly experienced and, and understand what they've experienced. Um, we should always be suspicious and critical of even our own understanding and our own interpretation of our experiences. But I do think that, Chris, you and I, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on the necessity of learning through our experience, both, you know, uh, our successes, our failures, coming to higher forms of truth, higher forms of knowledge, um, especially when it comes to trying to transform the world
1: yeah, in fact, that's the Mao's theory of knowledge, right? Yeah, try, fail,
0: yeah. now I do have a question. Do you think that this Gospel of Luke is dazzling? Because the men's clothes were dazzling. and i and I just want to I just want to know, like how many beads, how many like shiny little beads were on these clothes? because because when and I grew up, you know, the people in the skit were like wearing like these white robes, but no, they were dazzling. <laughs> They were bedazzled. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, like Moana's crab at the bottom of the ocean, bedazzled. Yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking too. They were bedazzled. I'm, I'm picturing (laughs) just like full, uh, full, full suit jackets and everything. Okay. Completely bedazzled. That's what I see. Rainbow bedazzling.
0: And the men encountered them, and they were fly. Cool. All right. Anything else here?
1: In that last bit, when they, when they get back to the disciples, and the disciples say. Or, or the, the message seemed to them an idle tale. I love that line. These words seemed an idle tale. Because talking about resurrection is ridiculous. And it does seem like an idle tale. Whether we mean that in the sense of like a bodily resurrection, which, to be honest, I'm not all that interested in arguing about. But um, the idea that systems of injustice can be overcome, that the poor will not always be forgotten. These are are affirmations of resurrection that are, that also seem like idle tales. They're ridiculous. So that was another thing that stood out to me.
0: Especially after such a massive defeat. In my Good Friday reflection, I remember, that was in the Gospel of Mark in particular, the, all the men, all the apostles had abandoned Christ. And so one could, could assume that the men had abandoned, which means they were not there through most most of the interrogating, the torturing, the crucifixion itself, but the women were there. And so the women were there, were faithful, were present through the whole struggle, and then the women were there for the resurrection as well. And so it's interesting to just to think about how particularly the male apostles who abandoned, who were not present through the torturing and the crucifixion, nor were they there when the women showed up uh, for the body, they see it as an idle tale, right? They're not present. Who knows where they are? Maybe they're off on Twitter, but they're not actually, they're no longer in the movement. They've ran away from the movement. Um, they mm. may still think of themselves as the apostles. They may still think of themselves as people involved in the struggle, but as the story goes, They're nowhere to be found, both in the hardship and after the hardship. Yeah, I I think that for me, what really stuck out in this, just hearing you read the text was that the people who were present, the people who were actually there through the struggle came to the most correct understanding, the most, you know, the truth, witnessed uh, the truth. And the people who weren't there thought this whole resurrection thing was a tale, thought that the movement had been crushed, um, everyone should hide, and that the that, that defeat, the crucifixion, was final.
1: Yeah, well said, Wilson. Well, <laughs> let me add one more thing, just as it popped into my head. There's a story earlier uh, in this gospel about um, when Lazarus rises, and then there's the story that f- immediately follows that, where Mary and Martha and the disciples are in a house together, and Mary, who has this expensive perfume that she saved for lazarus's burial practice pours it out on jesus's feet and it's one of the disciples it's judas who gets on to her about wasting that perfume Mm. on jesus's feet it's interesting it's these women who are going to do what mary had already been rebuked for doing they're doing the same practice for jesus's body it's an interesting interesting parallel there and oh yeah women women generally are the ones who were there in in this moment? Yeah, there were no and, men among them.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the way I've heard the emphasis on the women's presence uh, talked about uh, before is really a focus on their identity, on uh, on how they're uh, gendered, just kind of abstractly. But I think what's really sticking out to me right now in this conversation is that they were actually doing the work, right? They were the women who were doing the work and. I think that's what's the really, really important part, is that it's not just about the women were present and the men were not, but it's actually that the women were doing what, what everyone was supposed to be doing. They were present. They were working. They were laboring for it. They were in the struggle through the hardship and after the hardship, and that's why they are the ones who are able to witness the resurrection while everyone else thought it was a joke.
1: You ready to jump over to Matthew?
0: Matthew, yeah. The main thing that sticks out to me here is verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. This really stuck out to me when I, when I was reading it, because I think discipleship making has to mean something for us today. And for me, when I was reading this text earlier this week, it just hit me that making discipleship is a form of of developing the struggle, developing the movement for me. It is a it's a means of 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 organizing, of of arousing and mobilizing it, and it definitely requires education. But discipleship making is something active and it's not something that you know we just have a little Bible study <laughs> in our small little house church or something. And we call that discipleship. Discipleship making is political, I think. Because this whole movement, this whole struggle is, from top to bottom, political. It's, it's more political than anything. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think, that, I think that really stuck out to me, is that um, after the resurrection, for, first of all, there was a massive defeat, right? That's what the crucifixion is. It is a defeat. But it wasn't the last defeat. The resurrection comes about, and then we ask, what is next? And what's next is, go and make disciples. Go. Continue expand, consolidate. This was a heavy loss. We recognize it, but it's not our final. We're not done. We have more work to do. Yeah,
1: that's a great point. I think verse 18 really kind of bolsters that point as well when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Damn, it is political. It is political. He's making a claim about power there.
0: Uh, that's true. Uh, yeah, I didn't know where you're going with that, but I say that now. <laughs> And then, perhaps you know the very the very last line, "I am with you always to the end of the age." There's this emphasis on a spirit, a commitment, a drive that has been before us, that is with us today, and that will be with those struggling, those who actually show up to the tomb tomorrow. For me, I've been really reflecting on how what progressive, radical, and revolutionary Christians should be committed to today, really seeking justice, uh, seeking liberation, really trying to fundamentally transform the world. This work didn't start with us, and it's not going to end with us. And so seeing this as as a part of a great longer struggle, I think, also helps push away from that that doubt, that unbelief, the nihilism that plagues those who, uh, apparently to the story, aren't really all that involved in the work at all. Well, sweet. I think those were two really interesting stories, but there were some main topics and ideas that really stuck out to Chris and I, and let's go ahead and, and and walk through some of these, Chris, Um, because the main, the main thing that we really wanted to talk about today was this concept of revolutionary optimism and how, this kind of optimism and this kind of hope can help us combat some dominant tendencies. And to me, the two really dominant tendencies, especially among folks with any kind of consciousness, are nihilism or an idealist optimism. And so let's go ahead and start with nihilism.
1: I'm just going to talk about both of them kind of theologically for a second. I think when we think about nihilism— I think about those who, the disciples in Luke's gospel, for example, who look on the suffering of Christ on the cross and think that's the end, and they can't see anything past it, and they can't imagine anything past it. They are stuck in the death. The death is is what is most true for them. Now, when we talk about nihilism today, we could probably go into how there are different causes and different ways in which that works out materially, um, different reasons why people are nihilistic, including maybe their class orientation, lots of reasons. But for me, that nihilism is looking at the suffering and not being able to imagine through it and past it. On the other hand, the idealism doesn't actually see the suffering and move straight to the resurrection. We often, in churches, you often hear a lot of times, you can't have resurrection without death, and you need both. And I would say an idealism doesn't really have enough of an encounter with the death. To get to the resurrection, rose-colored glasses, unable to handle, make sense of the death, um, the very present death in our world, you know, the people who are still crucified.
0: Yeah, perhaps there are some things that both errors get right. On one hand, the nihilist gets right that there is crucifixion, right? The nihilist is not avoiding or uh, looking away from the reality that there is Crucifixion, That there is torture, that there is sanctions and drones and U.S. imperialism and structural anti-blackness within the U.S. and uh, patriarchy across the world and uh, climate destruction. So the nihilist, I think, on one hand, at least faithfully says, uh, listen, the United States is caging and tear gassing children um, on the borders. And can sit there and say it and say that is really fucked up. But denialist says, and I'm not for sure how it's going to change. Right. Denialist, I think, accurately sees the death and destruction. But as you said, gets stuck there. And so on the other hand, the idealist optimist, I like your I liked your comparison with the whole church thing. One, one, all they see is crucifixion. One, all they see is resurrection. And that was definitely a part of my religious upbringing. Although, you know, we did really lean into the crucifixion uh, as an evangelical. Easter, you know, we didn't really have a holy week. We had Easter. Easter Sunday was coming, and it was a celebratory, fun, happy day. And even the crucifixion was just all part of a happy day because, we all know how it ends. So yeah, the idealist optimist only sees resurrection and erases the reality of crucifixion, but especially our participation in the structural crucifying of the masses of the world. But one of the similarities I think that connects both of those, both of the nihilists all right, as far left as they think they are politically, and the idealist optimist, the one who completely rejects the suffering and the agony that's happening in the world, I think what what unites them is that I see them both as completely disconnected from the actual struggle. Right? They're not organizing. They're not in organizations trying to develop people's movements. They're they're not trying to organize communities based on their specific needs and concerns and anxieties and and demands you know they they're clearly not attempting to develop a revolutionary movement so while the radical nihilist who sees the truth of the suffering and the idealist optimist rejects that truth they actually have something in common and i think it's actually really really fundamental perhaps uh you know we could say they they are a left air and a right air and they're commonality is that they're not actually involved in the struggle and it's really really easy to get sad and to get frustrated and to just kind of bow out from the from the movement because you feel like it's just impossible you look at the world and you're like wow how can things change i'm gonna tweet about this all day and people people like that i think nihilism captures a lot of people today particularly within the us because we are not organized because we don't really have a strong people's movement. There's not a lot of mobilizing happening. And a people who are not being mobilized and organized, who are not who are not fighting for and with themselves, you have these two options. You just erase and you deny reality, the idealist optimist, or you get so depressed and you drink yourself to death every night in face of the suffering.
1: Yeah, I like how you named the 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 online nature of the nihilist and probably idealist. I would say, though, the nihilist probably has more of a hold on the Internet, because that's uh, where they're going to spend most of their time, because you don't, you're right, you don't get these views on politics through struggle. You only get them through trying to think your way individually around the problems of the world,
0: especially among the. If we could generalize the left, progressives, radicals, communists, generally, the left online is very nihilistic.
1: Mm -hmm. That brings up another interesting thing we could talk about is what makes a person left? Is it what they believe individually or is it something to do with their practice in the world? That's something Chase and I have been tossing back and forth lately and thinking about on the podcast quite a bit what makes a person left? Because I used to think it was, if you, and you, if you intellectually assented to a certain list of things, similar to how I used to think of Christian faith as well, if you intellectually assented to certain things, you were left. But now I think I'm problematizing that, thinking actually it has more to do with the work you do in the world and, and the struggle you actually undertake yourself. What do you think of that, Chase?
0: I think you and I would both agree that ideology is really important, right? Analysis is really, really important. But one of the great lacks that you and I have been discussing within the so-called people who – I'm not really worried about, like, identifying who is left and who's not, right? It's more so who's actually for – you know, revolutionary transformation. But I, what I hear you pointing out is that there's a lot of folks who might think of themselves as radical, think of themselves as left, think of themselves as revolutionary, and yet they're not actually doing anything. Mm-hmm. They're not actually changing their daily, their weekly habits to join an organization, to study within that organization, and to do real mass work. And, and, and mass work, I think, is really hard. And actually, before we go into mass work, you know, one of the cool things about this text was the emphasis on discipleship making, as I brought up. And and so for me, you know, we might call it discipleship making, call it organizing. I think that's the heart and soul of those who are truly committed to the struggle right now, because we could read all the books we want. We could have all the. General knowledge up in our head, and it means nothing for the world materially, and that's what matters to us, right? The the actual objective material relations and conditions, the real world, not the not the world, the realm of ideals up in our head, the realm of thoughts and beliefs. We want to put this stuff into practice, and so discipleship making or organizing, mobilizing, and arousing and educating. I think that's what really distinguishes from people who are revolutionary optimists people who have great hope for the present in the future because they're actually participating in the work and those who are nihilists or idealist optimists uh, who, have, who have a shallow optimism based on nothing and or have a very nihilistic view of the world that's based on no practice no experience no actual participation mm-hmm. i really like what you said i think This criteria of, are you actually trying to do some work? Are you organizing? You don't have to organize every day. You know, everyone has different time limits. But we have to reprioritize. We have to recenter organizing above online commentary stuff. We have to recenter organizing above podcasts. We have to recenter organizing above writing a book or starting a blog or getting a blue check Twitter mark or sharing memes, right? Sharing memes, retweeting, um, hot take after hot take. This is not going to develop a really radical, uh, strong leftist movement, or even of course a revolutionary struggle. And that's something that I think that we have to really sit in and take seriously. If we hope to actually see that resurrection, because I think the resurrection is possible. I think transformation is possible. Um, I don't think our defeats last year and, and the year before that and, and two decades before that, or even the, the defeats that we've faced you know, 10 seconds ago across the world, I don't think this is the end of our movement. It's very interesting to me when I hear people talk about socialism communism as a defeated project. That was something that happened 50 years ago. That was something that it was an it was an old old project uh, uh, that started 150 years ago. Now we need something new. We need like a third way, right? We need we need something more progressive. And here, let me come up with my random plan that I pulled out of my ass after I got my PhD, right? I think some folks feel like Marxism and socialism, communism, um, anti-colonial struggles, like that was so 20th century, but in 21st century, we need something uh, a little more easy.
1: You got to look at your privilege, man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like 21st century. We're just going to talk about checking privilege, but but that's not how we're going to fundamentally transform the world. We have to organize people to end those systems of privilege. But as long as we, As long as we stay back from the interrogating, the torturing, the crucifixion, as long as we stay back while the women who are actually doing the work go take the perfume and lay spices among the body, as long as we are truly disconnecting ourselves from actual work, then perhaps the crucifixion will be the end. Perhaps there will not be a resurrection. Or perhaps there will be a resurrection, and we're going to miss out on participating in it because oh. everyone else, because everyone else around us, got their asses up and transformed their lives. Right? Logged off Netflix, logged off uh, Instagram, logged off TikTok, and started to step by step. You don't have to leap in, change your life, you know, completely all in one day. But step by step, changing little bits of our parts, developing us spiritually, developing our minds politically, and then actually joining an organization or even starting organizations that help people fight, help people fight for resurrection, help people contest these powers of death.
1: Yeah, I like the way you said that. So, I mean, there is this very real possibility that we will not live another hundred years on this earth as a, as a species or most of us. So, I mean, that that is there. But when we think about the science of of socialism, communism, we know it's coming. We know that the workers are never going to stop finding ways to resist. We know that there will will someday, pending Armageddon, be a, a revolutionary movement, even here in the United States. We know that. We're going to make the transition at some point. Are we going to be there for it, though? Are you and I going to see it? That's a, That's an interesting question that should, damn, should keep us up at night. And the other thing that this conversation brings me back to is Mao, of course um on practice when he's like where do good or where do correct ideas come from do they fall from the sky no they're formed in struggle they're formed by the masses um yeah but but these these ideas of nihilism and idealism don't flow from what we call the mass line this um struggle learning from the struggle and and reframing the struggle and continuing to struggle with the masses uh, and with other revolutionaries in a cadre. You don't get nihilism and idealism from that. Those are things that come separate from the masses like we've been talking about. So where do good ideas come from? Well, they come from the masses. They come from struggle.
0: Yeah, and we all we might also... Uh, reword that to say where does hope come from the hope comes from the people actual in the struggle the hope comes from people on the ground giving their lives to this work understanding that the work had started before them it's going to go on now with or without them and it's going to continue on tomorrow whether we're at home sitting in our chairs or actually in the organization or on the streets at the workplace at the protest at the strike Right, at the meeting, doing the tedious stuff, all of it, you know the work, the struggle, the rebellion is going to happen. It is happening. Okay, It's ha- happening in nations all across the world. And two years ago, the U.S. saw a glimpse of an eruption, and that eruption is going to build because the conditions are getting worse. And the question is whether we will channel this spontaneous anger, this frustration, this sick and tired of being sick and tired into a struggle put on a scientific base, a struggle that can actually win and defeat our enemies? Or, again, are we going to sit back and look at how bad the crucifixion is, or are we going to reject the crucifixion altogether and imagine rainbows?
1: Yeah, so when we talk about resurrection, we're not talking about optimism necessarily we're not at least we're not talking about a shallow optimism yeah that affirms Christ without crucifixion and we're definitely not talking about nihilism um, that would need no resurrection or, or, or would tolerate no res- no resurrection because it's stuck in the pain but resurrection we could theologically understand there are lots of ways to understand it one way is that God is affirming Jesus in the struggle alongside the people for their liberation. So resurrection hope needs both the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, and And we continue to affirm that the enemies of the people's freedom and flourishing can be defeated, no matter how big Rome's armies seem or how technologically advanced the United States appears. We do have the upper hand. We have God on our side and we have the wide masses of the people. And the depth of creation itself And we can win. This is what we mean by revolutionary optimism. We have a resurrection hope that we can win in the end.
0: Absolutely. And so with that hope, with that revolutionary optimism, that's grounded in real practical struggle, that's grounded in the history of the masses fighting against their enemies, fighting for their lives, fighting to end systems of exploitation and oppression we go and we make disciples. We join in the movement, we expand and we consolidate. The struggle didn't happen 50 years ago. It didn't happen 100 years ago. It is happening right now. We've faced massive defeats, but today is a day of resurrection. It's a day of discipleship making. And as Christians committed to the work of God in this world, we are called to go make disciples. And so that's my prayer. Let's go fucking make some disciples.